So the reading is Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through to chapter 5, verse 1. You can find it on page 1171 of the Church Bibles. Galatians 4, starting at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. And let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help as we begin. Thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus is our rock and our redeemer. Thank you, Father, that in him we are completely redeemed and adopted as your children. And we do pray now as we think about this passage, Father, that you would reinforce that truth and that new reality on our hearts by your spirit in jesus name amen well people love talking about their greatest fears don't they Uh, people love talking about their fear of public speaking or fear of heights i share both of those uh, or fear of spiders Um, but there's one fear that i think everyone i've met shares One fear that affects us almost every single day, and one fear that I think British people experience more than any other culture, and it's this, the fear of making a fuss. We hate making a fuss, don't we? We hate, as we say, upsetting uh, the apple cart. Uh, To give you an example, I went for a meal uh, a while ago with four friends, and one of them happened to be Australian. Uh, The meal wasn't great, but it was kind of passable. And it came to that moment in the meal where the waitress came up to us and said to us, is everything okay? And everyone knows, don't you, the right answer, the only answer you're to give at that point is, yeah, it's great, thank you. But my Australian friend didn't get the memo. 
and he got the waitress to look at his salad and pointed out all the dry bits, all the brown bits, and the three of us just wanted to die because he had made a fuss. But I don't know how we feel about what we've been seeing in Galatians. See, Paul's quite clearly said, hasn't he, there's no side doors when it comes to entering into God's house. It is only through Christ alone, through belief in him alone, not our religious rituals, not our ethnic background, not uh, uh, our IQ. But maybe we've been asking the question, is it worth all the fuss, Paul? Okay, we get that Jesus is important, but do we really need a whole letter like this? And do we need to risk division over this particular subject? After all, we know, don't we, that the church feels very weak in this part of the world, that the last thing we need is a quibble over how exactly we are saved. And perhaps you wonder more personally, what difference does this actually make? Okay, you trust Jesus, but what does it mean to really take this on board on Monday morning or with your friends or family? But our passage this morning shows us why a fuss is absolutely necessary. Or to put it more positively, why that message that God saved his people, not by what they do, but what he has done for them, should be the absolute defining truth of our lives and one that we defend at every opportunity. Uh, Why is that? Well, as we're going to see, because achieving what should really be received will result in slavery. Because receiving what Christ achieved is actually freedom, and because receiving what Christ achieved is the gospel. See that first one there? Because achieving what should be received equals slavery. See, why does it matter so much precisely how we relate to God? Okay, some people find it helpful to add things like religious rituals or spiritual experiences or add extra laws to their faith. What's the big problem? Well, Paul says, well, because that is the path to slavery. Uh, In Paul's argument here, he kind of gets to the end of things And this is the kind of final weapon in his arsenal that he brings out. He goes back to where it all started. He he asks in verse 22, tell 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? In other words, have you not read what it is you're saying you believe? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Now, remember back a couple of weeks ago, we saw, didn't we, Abraham, and we saw that God had promised to bless the world through him. Remember the Top Trumps game? Uh, In fact, someone after that service sent me some Old Testament Top Trumps, which is pretty cool. Uh, Remember the Top Trumps? Abraham scored most highly uh, on terms of uh, being blessed by God. But actually, when it came to his children, he scored a big fat zero. Because as much as God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through his children, there was no evidence that that was going to take place. Not only that, but when God made that very promise, Abraham and his wife Sarah were claiming their old age pension. 
And right at that very moment, when Abraham's 80 years old, here's what he says. No, he doesn't say that. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. So this promise is coming to Abraham at 80 years old. I mean, you don't need me to tell you how impossible that looked. And maybe God's promises to you today don't feel much different. Perhaps you hear these promises in Galatians, promises like you're adopted, you're forgiven, that actually you're loved in the Lord Jesus. But then you look at your failures, your browsing history, the turbulence of your home life, or the just seemingly impossible reality that there might be life beyond death. And you think to yourself, like Abraham and Sarah, it cannot happen. But it's interesting what Abraham and Sarah did next, because faced with this impossible promise, or seemingly impossible promise, they didn't give up on it, but nor did they trust it either. Instead, they tried to make it happen in their own way. Um, over the weekend, I've been putting together uh, most of Ikea's stock of um, flat pack furniture, and uh, it, it's good fun. I love doing it. It's like grown-up Lego. And um, as I did it, one of my kids got their toy drill and decided to start drilling in some of the screws. It was a very cute moment. Claire got the camera out, and we loved it. But um, please don't tell my kids this. If I'm really honest, do you know what? It didn't actually help. <laughs> it didn't actually manage to do much. And there's something of that kind of response in Abraham and Sarah here. Uh, have a look at this in Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I could build a family through her. Abraham agreed, and Sarah said, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan, uh, Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. You see what's going on here? Um, they've heard this promise that there's going to be the, a great blessing of the world through Abraham's children. They've looked at their situation, thought it looks impossible, and so they've decided to help God out, to go their own way. Now, here's the subtlety of this. It's not that they're denying God's promise. It's not that they're ignoring what God has said, in fact, they want the very things God has said, but they don't trust him to deliver. It's like they get the toy drill out to give a helping hand. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, it's cute when my kids do it, but actually it's deadly when we do it with our salvation. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 23. Paul says, His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is for Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, this is probably some of the most difficult part of Galatians, so if it's frying your brain, don't worry. But I, I think what Paul is saying this, he's getting us to ask the question, what happened when Abraham and Sarah 
tried to go their own way. What happened when they didn't trust God's promise and him to deliver? Well, here's what Genesis says. Um, verse 19, uh, so Abraham goes to God and he says, look, I've got you this son, God. Now bless the world through him. And God says, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants. As for Ishmael, this was the son born by Hagar, I will surely bless him, I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. But verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Do you see what God's saying here? Actually, I'm not going to do it your way, Abraham. Sure, he blesses Ishmael, he looks after Hagar, it's yeah, there's a nice little detail there. But the big point is that actually they're outside of the covenant. And Hagar, who's the kind of slave, Paul uses as a kind of figure, uh, as an illustration, to say that actually that is what happens when we try to go our own way. On the diagram here, you'll see that, I'm trying to represent this, if this is useless, please ignore it. Uh, but um, because the promise looked impossible here, Abraham goes another route, with Hagar, and she gives birth to Ishmael. But because she is a slave girl, Ishmael is a slave. And Paul says that is what happens. Now, Paul says all this not to give us a kind of history lesson in Genesis, but to show us that this is what happens every single time we try and achieve the promise that we should just receive. See, he makes a parallel here with us. See, we've been made a promise in Jesus that actually we're forgiven, we're adopted, that we have eternal life to look to. But the Galatians are making the mistake of going to the law and circumcision, to do it their way, to get the things God promises under their own steam. And Paul says, what's the result of that? Well, it's going to be slavery. Now, perhaps you're struggling to kind of see how that might work, but I guess it's like this, that if we say to ourselves that actually we need a super spiritual experience to get closer to God, and we ignore what God has promised us in the Lord Jesus, we well, can imagine, can't you, that when you get that super spiritual experience, things feel very good. You feel like you're on the top of the roller coaster. But then the spiritual experience evaporates, and then you're searching for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And you can see how you go from freedom to slavery, searching for that next experience. Or perhaps we feel acutely the, the weight of our sin, and we think to ourselves, well, I just need to go and make a bargain. I need to go to a priest, or I need to make a bargain with myself that I won't mess up for another week. But then, of course, we do things go south. We're reminded of our character. And again, we, we search for the next way of dealing with our sins. And you can see how slavery is the result. See, any time we take God's promise and we add to it, actually the result is slavery. See, coming back to our first point, you can see, can't you, why it's worth making the fuss. Because as you look around us and we see people um, who might not be following Jesus, actually, it's, it's very easy, isn't it, to think, well, it doesn't matter. It's just one of those things. I go my way, they go their way. 
But Paul is saying, look, there's actually more, far more at stake here. See, to not trust God at his promise will enslave us. But Paul doesn't just give us the negative uh, and tell us what we lose. He goes on to tell us what we gain because he shows us that receiving what Christ has achieved equals freedom. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find, or quite a lot of time, I find living by faith alone very difficult because there's not anything kind of tangible to point to. I remember when I was um, a young Christian in my final year of university, I went off on this big student conference, one of the NUS things with thousands of people, and I was put in a hotel room, a triple room, with a Muslim guy and a Jewish guy. Now, it sounds like the start of a joke. It's not, (laughs) I promise you. Uh, But these two guys, they were kind of either side of me. And it was really remarkable because the Muslim guy, he... um, got up several times a day, he, he washed his feet in the bathroom, he got his prayer mat out down the side of the hotel bed and then began to pray. And the Jewish guy, he went down to dinner and there was a big discussion about what was on the menu and whether it was kosher or not. And there was a bit of me that thought, do you know what, that's not fair. I want a prayer mat. I want a special menu. Because here's little old me just trusted in God's promise, having faith, and it doesn't feel very tangible. I've got nothing to point to. No demonstration of what Jesus has done. But Paul shows us that actually, faith does change everything. Or rather, it is because everything has been changed. It is the path to freedom. See, going back to Abraham, 15 years later in the story, the child finally came. Here's what uh, is said in Genesis 21. Now the Lord, and just notice the repeated phrases here. It's a lovely um, set of verses. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac the son Sarah bore him. Do you notice the repeat? As God promised, in his time, as he had said. It looked so impossible, and to remind them of how impossible it was, he gave them the name Isaac. And uh, Isaac means he laughs. It's like having a child and calling them, you're having a laugh. Uh, Maybe there's some ideas there uh, for the shortlist if you're picking names at the moment. But that's the kind of idea, because it looks so impossible. But actually, God did the impossible. And actually, Paul goes on to say that God has done the impossible for us. See, look at verse 27. He says here, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who sorry than of her who has a husband now when you stop and think about what's being said there it can seem quite insensitive he's saying actually the one who isn't able to have children will rejoice but then you look at why he's saying this well because she's going to have more children than the one who has a husband. Now, immediately, I hope you're thinking, this is kind of about Sarah and Hagar. Uh, 
Hagar had uh, children uh, naturally. Sarah couldn't have children. And yet Sarah uh, ended up having Isaac and the rest is history, as they say. But actually, this quote is from Isaiah. It's several centuries later. And it's not written about Sarah and Hagar. It's written about a nation. See, at this point, Israel finds itself completely in the darkness. It's in exile. Its nation has been decimated. And effectively, what's left are a few thousand refugees in another land. And it's at that point God makes this promise to them that they will be a new people, even more than they can imagine. Imagine how impossible that must have sounded when you're in the refugee camp. And Paul says that is now about us. It's like... um, It's like this. Thank you. Sarah had no children. Israel had no hope. But then Sarah was given Isaac. And Israel will become a new people. But then Paul says, that is about us. Verse 26, he says, the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. In other words, it's kind of like this. On the surface, we have no hope. We look an ordinary set of people, as nice as you are. But actually, God has promised us that we are a new people, forgiven, adopted in the Lord Jesus. See, how do we know that? Well, Paul says it's because there was another one who was born of a childless woman. There was one who looked a complete failure, who looked like he had finished. His evaporators had Uh, His followers had evaporated. It looked like there was no hope. But then we remember, don't we, on Easter Sunday, things changed. The stone was rolled away. Jesus was raised. And now in him, from a wooden cross with zero followers, he is now building a church across our entire world. See, the point is we don't need the tangible sign. We don't need to search for the thing we can point to and say that means that I'm adopted by God or that means I'm in his favor. Because the point is those things have already been achieved. And so it is just about grasping with the empty hand what God has promised and done in Jesus. See, we don't need to search for the super spiritual experience. Of course, God's gracious. He gives us um, experiences and encourages us from time to time, but those things don't make us part of his family. We don't need the priest to confess to. We don't need uh, the special religious ritual. Now, it's right to confess. We've confessed this morning, but, but those things don't make us part of God's people. Jesus does, and our job is to trust. And we don't need to go on that cycle of thinking, I've stuffed up. I need to sort myself out, pull my bootstraps up, and then God will like me. Because actually in Jesus, everything has been done for us. See, the path to freedom is not by doing, but by trusting what God has already done. So we can see, can't we, why a fuss is absolutely necessary. See, if we exchange Jesus for anything else, it's slavery, 
But if we trust in what he's already achieved, it's freedom. But maybe, finally, uh, as we, maybe we're asking the question, what do we actually mean by a fuss? Well, thirdly, we see here that receiving what Christ has achieved is the gospel. See, why make the fuss? I mean, I don't know what sort of image you've got of the Apostle Paul, but it's very easy, isn't it, to think that he was just a kind of awkward person that we would would kind of like to argue with people, or he liked to ruffle the feathers. But Paul does this because he knows there's something far more at stake than his personal reputation. See, go back to Isaiah quote in verse 27, and notice what he says in the, the second half of that verse. He says, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her of her who has a husband. See, he's not just saying, look, one of them's going to have more children than the other. He's making a comparison. He's saying more are the children than the one who has a husband. In other words, it is the way of promise, the, the one who had no children, that actually bears fruit. And Paul says, look, That is the way of the gospel. It's not that just Paul wants to win a battle. It's not that he's just having an argument here. But he knows that by declaring that God has done everything in the Lord Jesus, and by calling people to turn and trust in that, that is the way there will be gospel fruit. People often talk about how we grow the church. Um, All of us want to see the church grow. We want to see it more influential, don't we? But here's the answer. It is the gospel. It is by declaring what God has done in the Lord Jesus that the church goes out and grows up. Paul says in verse 28 of chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he can say that, can't he? Because everyone comes in the same way. No matter your background, no matter your experience, no matter your past history, actually in the Lord Jesus, you are forgiven and you're part of his people. Now, why does that matter to us? Why does that matter Monday morning? Well, Paul has one last visit to Genesis to show us what's at stake. Uh, Back in Genesis, after Isaac was born, uh, effectively had a first birthday. And at that first birthday, it was lots of fun. There was jelly and ice cream, of course. But there was a bit of a sour note because his older brother, Ishmael, started mocking him. But Sarah, we read in Genesis 21, Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. See, there was a division at the party. There was a division in this family. And Paul says there will be a division today He says that actually this truth will cause people to resist it. He says, verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. See, all through Galatians, Paul has been speaking not just of this truth, that it is by faith alone, but actually of the persecution that comes from the cross. Uh, Look over the page to chapter 5, verse 11, or down the page. He says this, Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. 
See, Paul's saying, look, actually, if I stop preaching the cross, then there's no offense. And I was thinking to myself, what does Paul mean there by the offense of the cross? Is is it that it's gruesome? Is it that it's kind of violent? But then I saw that actually it's not about what the cross is. It's about what it says about us. See, the cross shows us that we cannot do things ourselves, that we need a savior, that we're completely reliant on God through the Lord Jesus. And as I say that, as wonderful as that is, there is that little man and woman in, a, in us, isn't there, that says, you don't know me, or what about this, or what about my achievements? And Paul's advice is quite surprising here, because he goes back to that first birthday, and he says, what happened? Well, Sarah kicked out Hagar and Ishmael. Now, God looked after them, but that's kind of by the by. He shows us that actually that is what should happen now. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will not be, never share the inheritance of the free woman's son. Now, I don't think that means we literally start kicking people out the door, just in case you're worried. I don't think that's what it means. It doesn't mean we go on any sort of witch hunt at all, but it does mean that we remember always what is at stake with the gospel. Remember chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preached, let him be eternally condemned. See, that, it's that important we hold on to, that we don't even let an angel tell us otherwise. And remember, this is the same Paul who said, make every effort to keep the unity, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and yet this issue is important enough for him to risk a division in the church. That's why Paul says, stand firm. I was thinking, what's the kind of application uh, from this passage? And there is an application here, isn't there? If we're trusting in our own things, don't trust in the promise. And we may need to hear that. Uh, There is an application here if we're kind of letting our eyes wander onto our achievements and less onto Jesus, or that we need to refocus on him. And that's true. But actually, Paul gives us the application in chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. We saw a lot of standing firm yesterday in the rugby as those huge units of players took their stand against the tackles. And that doesn't mean we kind of be awkward, we'd be offensive as a church or anything like that, we'd be kind. But it does mean that we're immovable on this truth that Jesus has done everything in the gospel. I'm glad we've got that as a kind of instinct as a church. And that is something we don't want to take for granted, is it? There'd be many changes over the years, we hope, but one thing will not change. And it's this, that the gospel stands at its heart. And it means we want to stand for this in the wider church. Galatians shows us, doesn't it, how easy it is to have a wobble. And even senior leaders like Peter needed correcting. And Paul says, stand firm. And I wonder what that looks like for us. It's very easy, isn't it, to, I I do this myself, just to let this drift in importance and to forget how central this is. But again, for us, in the office on Monday, amongst friends on Wednesday... It is about standing firm, declaring what God has done in Jesus 
and not moving from that. Is it worth making a fuss? Absolutely. Let's pray. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for your extraordinary kindness in delivering your promise to Abraham, to your people Israel, and finally to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would be those transformed by that promise, trust that promise, and never move from that promise. And we ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen.